So this morning we continue our summer spiritual cinema series, and I'm going to talk about the beautiful, eloquent, and understated movie, The Visitor, an independent film. Who has seen it? Oh, I knew Mick and Becky, and Mick and Becky are the only ones. So. I, I, I hope you'll decide that it's worth seeing just because I like it, <laughs> which is not really a good reason, but the story here is that this professor, Walter Vail, is a widower. He's alone. He's cut off from other people. He's not really doing his job anymore. He's using syllabi from 25 years ago, and he hasn't rewritten any of his lectures, and he doesn't really want to talk to students. He doesn't really want to talk to anyone. He's not really feeling his own feelings. He seems to have a drinking problem. All of the early scenes have him with either a bottle or a glass of wine. His wife was a skilled classical pianist, and Walter seems to be trying to hold on to her by learning to play the piano. But he's really bad at it. He has no feel for it. He doesn't have the beat on the piano. He's lost the sense of his own heartbeat, and the piano isn't helping him to regain his pulse. So his department chair forces him, really forces him, to go to a conference at NYU where he, it's about global economic development, which is sort of ironic as you learn more about the movie. When he gets to New York, he finds, because he keeps an apartment in Manhattan, but he hadn't been there in a long time. And he finds Tarek and Zineb living in his apartment. They thought they had legally sublet it, but it was a con. After the initial screaming and uh, confrontation, they pack up and, and go out. And Walter sees them on the street. And his heart thaws just enough to invite them to stay. To stay for the night, he says, until you find a place. One reviewer called it an instinctive flicker of compassion. And I think it, that's all it was at that point, just a flicker. He's still quite frozen. But from this small act of compassion, of paying attention to another, to, to others really, Walter begins to come out of his numbed sleeping state. Tarek is a professional drummer, a djembe player. He plays in jazz clubs as well as in the park. He's also a warm, vital young man with an easy smile. Tarek begins to teach Walter the drum. He tells Walter, with the drum, you have to remember not to think. Thinking just screws it up. And, and Walter, Walter begins. He seems to have a feel for the drum. After a few lessons, because, in fact, Walter has invited them to stay, as they had no other place to stay in New York. Tarek invites Walter to a Central Park drum circle and wants him to participate. Now, Walter is a middle-aged or late middle-aged white guy wearing a suit, or at least a sports jacket and a tie and a kind of crisp white shirt. But they get to Central Park, and Tarek really wants him to join in this drum circle. He says, come on, Walter, it's easy. You just wait until you feel it. And Walter does eventually feel it. And he sits down with the drum, and he hesitatingly and awkwardly begins to play in this 
widely varied colored group of mostly young men. He begins to find his own beat. The poster for this movie said connection is everything. And it's through his connections with Tarek and Zaneb and then later Tarek's mother that Walter finds his heart. He finds his own beat. He begins to live again. He really wakes up to life. He is awakened. He wakes up through experiencing and expressing compassion through that connection. And he begins a spiritual practice drumming and he is awkward at first but by the middle of the movie you see he's he's drumming everywhere he's drumming as he drives his car (laughs) he's drumming everywhere he's come alive he sells the old piano he faces his fears his shadows he stops wearing a tie all the time And then he buys new glasses. He looks freer. He looks happier, just more relaxed. And I think a wonderful thing about this movie is the the leading actor, who's Richard Jenkins, who played the father on the TV series Six Feet Under, if you ever saw that. He is so believable as Walter Vale you see the changes in Walter's life and Walter's feelings in the smallest of expressions. He's really able to communicate well in an understated way. So the end of the movie shows Walter drumming in the subway station, which was something Tarek said that he'd always wanted to do but hadn't. We don't know what will happen to him or what we, he will do. But what we do know is that he is alive. He's alive, he's able to connect with other people again, and he's able to be himself. He has awakened to life. We also don't know what will happen to the other characters. And some of that is quite sad. But I'll come back to that. Awakening is essential to spirituality. The Buddhist scholar and writer Robert Thurman talks about Buddhism meaning awaking, awakening, and so the therefore Thurman considered himself to be an evangelist for awakening. Buddha just means the awakened one. Thurman said awakening means understanding what's going on and being kind to others. The minute you awaken to the cause of suffering, which is your self-preoccupation and self-misperception, you'll begin to have a happier time. And the more you awaken to connection with others, the more free of suffering you'll become. In the Christian scriptures, too, Jesus advises, beware, keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. Therefore, keep awake. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. I think the writers of the Christian scriptures knew how difficult it was, in fact, to keep awake. Even once you have experienced some awakening. They, they tell the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the crucifixion. <clears throat> He asked the disciples to stay awake with him and pray. Three times he asks, and three times they fall asleep. 
So the message there in Mark is simply, keep awake and pray. And Unitarian tradition, too, emphasizes awakening. William Ellery Channing was the first American Unitarian minister to claim that title, Unitarian, openly and proudly. Channing was in the 19th century, early 19th century, and he taught and preached a lot about what he called self-culture. It's kind of an awkward word in the way we understand things now, but what he meant by culture, culture at that point had more to do with the idea of cultivation, sort of like animal culture or plant culture. It had to do with growth. So self-culture for Channing meant the care which every man, and he didn't say and woman, but I will say and woman, owes to themselves as the unfolding and perfection of nature. To cultivate anything, be it plant, animal, mind, is to make it grow. So Channing preached that one's soul could be awakened and could grow. He saw religion as a process of growing likeness to God. But the growth happens through spiritual practice. Through spiritual growth, one becomes more oneself and better able to use one's gifts in service to the world, which is really part of what Wellsprings is all about. And we can trace it back at least to this 19th century Unitarian. After Channing, the next generation of Unitarians were the Transcendentalists. We know Thoreau and Emerson, particularly from American literature, but they were spiritual writers and religious people. And they too talked about awakening about cultivating spiritual growth, and about acting with love in the world. Thoreau said, we must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. Emerson wrote in his journal that religion is neither beliefs nor rituals. It is rather life. It's not something to be got, not something to be added. It is to have a new life using those gifts which you already have. In his essay, Nature, Emerson wrote, the best moments of life are those delicious awakenings of the higher power. Contemporary Unitarian Universalist minister Barry Andrews wrote that, broadly speaking, it was the goal of self-culture to make it possible for these moments of mystical awareness to begin to characterize every day to develop a sense of spirituality every day into every part of life. Andrews wrote that his reading of the Transcendentalists had led him to conclude that the greatest challenge of life is to wake up before we die, and that this is really what religion is all about. So this, too, is a goal of Wellsprings Congregation, to learn and to practice together so that we may be awake and may be aware of the spiritual in our everyday, everyday lives, so that we may help our families to grow spiritually, and so that we may share our abundance, our gifts in service to others and to the world. To really wake up and to stay awake takes attention and it takes intention. It takes spiritual practice and spiritual discipline. It's the care of the soul. 
Just as we do at Wellsprings, chanting in the transcendentalist practiced and encouraged varied paths to spiritual awakening. Sometimes we don't think that Unitarian Universalists have our own spiritual practice tradition, but in fact we do. And it is many of the things that we encourage each other to do here at Wellsprings. These include daily prayer, meditation, contemplation, reading, writing, and walking. Thoreau did what he called sauntering for up to four hours a day. He said he didn't think he could stay healthy spiritually, physically, psychologically if he didn't walk at least four hours a day. And sometimes in the morning, especially when he lived at Walden, he spent three or four hours in contemplation, just sitting on his front step watching the world. The transcendentalists also read and studied what they called ethical scriptures, which were scriptures from all the world religions that they were able to find. They wrote each other long, thoughtful letters, and they held what they called conversations, which were intentional group discussions, maybe like a springboard, except they were a little larger than our small groups. Intentional group discussions on spiritual topics or educational topics. They studied nature. For some of them, the study of botany was the spiritual practice. These transcendentalist ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, advocated paying attention to one's inner voice, to nature, and to other people. And like the Buddhists, they say that through this attention, we become more aware of our interconnection and more aware of the sacred, the divine, in everyday life. Emerson claimed that the inevitable mark of wisdom is to see the miraculous in the common. To be able to see the miraculous this morning, in this room, in the woods, to see the miraculous just where we live. So in the film, Walter, I think, had begun to do that. He'd awakened, he'd come alive, he was paying attention to himself and to other people, he was better able to be honest with himself and to others. He continued his spiritual practice daily. But awakening to life does not mean that life becomes all happiness and joy. Awakening to life can mean becoming aware of pain, suffering, injustice. And awakening and spiritual practice are not ends in themselves. They are means. The Buddhists might say they are skillful means. Walter had been experiencing the suffering of the unenlightened being, which means, Thurman said, the suffering of self-centeredness and disconnection from others. Lama Surya Das wrote that learning how to love is the goal and purpose of spiritual life. Loving action both leads to awakening and is a result of awakening. So Walter grew spiritually when he began to love his neighbor, as both Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism all teach. Religious teachers are clear that the fruits of spiritual growth are seen in action. Awakened ones, the Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, are those who serve through teaching and through compassion. For transcendentalists, true spirituality required an outward manifestation. The moral and spiritual go together. Spiritual insights 
ought to lead to ethical action. And many of them pursued that ethical action as best as they could figure out. Emerson saw sustainable spirituality as based on ethical commitment and right action, and he insisted that with ever greater conviction, ever greater conviction, that ethical action was not a byproduct of religion, but the very core of religion itself. And Emerson and his colleagues became active in the movement of their day, which was the abolition of slavery, women's rights, educational rights for all. They took what small, loving, ethical actions they could figure out. Christianity, Unitarian Universalists, Buddhism, Judaism teach that love and care for the neighbor is essential. And this film, The Visitor, might be said to pose that question asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? The movie clearly shows us that Tarek and his family are Walter's neighbors, and Walter acts. He does his best to take compassionate action. Turns out that Tarek and Zainab, and also Tarek's mother, are illegal immigrants. So when Tarek is arrested in the subway for something he didn't even do, He's iced. That is, he's taken to an Immigration Customs Enforcement Detention Center. When he's confined, Walter visits. He visits every day. He's exposed to an entirely new world. He hires an immigration attorney. Later, Tariff's mother arrives because she doesn't know what's going on. Her son hasn't called her. And Walter helps her and invites her to stay with him. But Walter is not able to fix this. This is a big problem. He can't resolve this family's problems. Still, he does what the Talmud advises us, which is, look ahead. You are not expected to complete the task. Look ahead. You are not expected to complete the task. Neither are you permitted to put it down. Neither are you permitted to put it down? We are called to serve and love in whatever ways we can, no matter how small. And Walter does that. He's able to feel. He's able to feel sadness. He's able to feel grief. He's able to feel joy. Now, I'm one of those strange people who sit in the movie after everybody else is gone. My husband and I sit there until the very end of the credits. You never know what you're going to find when you sit through the end of the credits. Sometimes it's quite interesting. At the end of The Visitor was a page that read www.participate.net. That's all that was on the page. I went to that page, and there I found a lot of things. These particular people are not illegal immigrants, and they have lived here most of their lives. They are Americans. They feel like Americans. We would think they were Americans, and they very well may be deported. They might have already been deported. Online, I I read a writing from an uh, immigrant advocate and visitor of detention centers who said that the portrayal in the visitor of the detention center doesn't really portray how harsh and unjust the experience is. And as Tarek said, it's not the terrorists who are in these detention centers. 
So how do we, how do we act in ethical right action toward our neighbors? There's some closer stories right here in Pennsylvania, and maybe you heard or saw this in the news, but just north in a little town called Shenandoah, which is in the coal country and near Hazleton, a town with 5,600 residents, some of whom are Mexican immigrants. On Friday, three white teenagers, members of the high school football team and one uh, student at Bloomsburg University, were charged with the murder of 25-year-old Mexican man, Luis Ramirez. Now, Ramirez was an immigrant, and he was an illegal immigrant. He was a farm worker. He had lived in this town for six years. He was engaged to a young white woman in the town and had several children with her. He was beaten to death on July 12th. And one of the young men called out as they ran away from the beating, tell your expletive Mexican friends to get the expletive out of Shenandoah or you are going to be laying next to them. Crystal Dillman the fiancé said that Luis was often called derogatory names and told to get out of town and go back where he belonged. Now, all of these young people, all of them, are our neighbors. One is dead. Many lives have been irrevocably changed. How can we respond with compassion? What can we do to reduce ethnic hatred and racism in our neighborhoods? Another story for central Pennsylvania, just up the road from where I live, actually, is about Dr. Pedro Servano and his wife, Salvation. They've lived in this small towns of Sealands Grove and Sunbury for 25 years, and he's a physician who did house calls and was really, is really well respected in the community. Since they had come from the Philippines 25 years ago with green cards, legally, they thought, They lived quietly. They raised four children who are all American citizens. They were active members of their community. When they applied for citizenship, they were denied and told to prepare themselves for deportation. Because their mothers had filled out the green card applications for each of them separately, saying they were single. But the couple, who were young adults in the Philippines, married secretly before they came. This had nothing to do with the U.S. government. They were just trying to please their parents. The ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement officials, said the Servanos had been given a fair shake and they had lied on the papers because they hadn't told the officials that they'd married in the Philippines before they married again when they got to New Jersey. Now, these people may not be deported. They may not be separated from their children and other extended family who've become American citizens. And if they don't, it will be because they had resources, because they were well-respected in their community. People in the community held vigils, wrote letters, signed petitions, and got Senator Specter and Senator Casey involved. And Senator Specter has been trying to help them to stay. A lot of immigrants don't have that kind of support. And the Servanos may still be deported 
for words that their mothers wrote on immigration papers. NPR asked this morning, who is an American? They asked people on the street in Philadelphia, and I was interested in some of the answers. Now, I know people didn't have a time to think about this question, but one man said, an American is someone who gets up and goes to work from 9 to 5 every day, who has committed no crime and pays taxes. I think that's a pretty limited definition, and several of us in this room would not fit that. Nine to five every day. Some of us work night shift. Some of us don't make enough money to pay taxes. And I'll bet everyone who drives has been a speeder at some time. And another man gave an even more limited definition. He said an American is someone who speaks English. Limited in some ways and too wide in others. It includes all of Great Britain and Ireland and Australia. I know they weren't given time to think about this. And also on the radio, as sort of as part of the story, they talked to a man who's a Lene Lenape, the native tribe who lived in this area. Lived in this area for 10,000 years before Europeans arrived here. Uh, Maybe they should have some definition of who is an American. And actually the man did. He said for native people, an American is anyone who lives in the... um, this hemisphere, and also in South America, anyone who lives in the Americas. So rejections of citizen application, citizenship applications have increased tremendously since 1996. Denials are now higher than at any time since the 1920s, when I remember studying in history about nativist reactions and riots. In 2000, Nearly 400,000 people had their citizenship applications rejected and were deported. These are our neighbors. These are serious issues, real stories. Our neighbors are troubled and hurting. Again, how can we be ethical and compassionate? How can we help? I have to say, I don't, definitely don't have the answers, all the answers to that question to my questions. I do have that website, www.participate.net, which does have some suggestions. And I do know that we can find the courage to speak up against racism and ethnic intimidation whenever we confront it. And I invite anyone who might be interested in a springboard to study these issues and to learn more about what we might do to act ethically and compassionately to let me know. And for right now, I pray that our hearts be compassionate and that we are guided to our own small actions, our own right ethical actions. May you live in blessing. May you find ways to pass that blessing on. Will you pray with me? Spirit of life and love, may we all be awakened. May we be awakened to all reality. May we be surprised by joy. May we always know hope. Help us to know who are our neighbors and to grow more and more in our ability to love. 
and to bring love to the world. May we be guided on our spiritual path. This is my prayer this morning. Amen. May it be so.